Chapter 4 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 4. The days passed. McTeague had finished the operation on Trina's teeth. She did not come any more to the parlors. Matters had readjusted themselves a little between the two during the last sittings. Trina yet stood upon her reserve, and McTeague still felt himself shambling and ungainly in her presence. But that constraint and embarrassment that had followed upon McTeague's blundering declaration broke up little by little. In spite of themselves, they were gradually resuming the same relative positions they had occupied when they had first met. But McTeague suffered miserably for all that. He never would have Trina, he saw that clearly. She was too good for him, too delicate, too refined, too prettily made for him who is so coarse, so enormous, so stupid. She was for someone else, Marcus, no doubt, or at least for some finer-grained man. She should have gone to some other dentist, the young fellow on the corner, for instance, the poser, the rider of bicycles, the courser of greyhounds. McTeague began to loathe and to envy this fellow. He spied upon him going in and out of his office, and noted his salmon-pink neckties and his astonishing waistcoats, one Sunday, a few days after Trina's last sitting, McTeague met Marcus Scholler at his table in the car conductor's coffee joint, next to the harness shop. "'What you got to do this afternoon, Mac?' inquired the other, as they ate their suet pudding. "'Nothing, nothing,' replied McTeague, shaking his head. His mouth was full of pudding. It made him warm to eat, and little beads of perspiration stood across the bridge of his nose. He looked forward to an afternoon passed in his operating chair as usual— on leaving his parlors, he had put ten cents into his pitcher, and had left it at Frenna's to be filled. "'What do you say we take a walk, huh?' said Marcus. "'Ah, that's the thing. A walk. A long walk, by damn. It'll be out of sight. I got to take three or four of the dogs out for exercise, anyhow. Old Grannis thinks they need it. We'll walk out to the Presidio.' Of late it had become the custom of the two friends to take long walks from time to time. On holidays and on those Sunday afternoons when Marcus was not absent with the Sipas, they went out together, sometimes to the park, sometimes to the Presidio, sometimes even across the bay. They took a great pleasure in each other's company, but silently and with reservation, having the masculine horror of any demonstration of friendship. They walked for upwards of five hours that afternoon, out to the length of California Street, and across the Presidio Reservation to the Golden Gate. Then they turned, and, following the line of the shore, brought up at the cliff house. Here they halted for beer, Marcus swearing that his mouth was as dry as a hay-bin. Before starting on their walk, they had gone around to the little dog hospital, and Marcus had let out four of the convalescents, crazed with joy at the release. "'Look at that dog,' he cried to McTeague, showing him a finely bred Irish setter. "'That's the dog that belonged to the duck on the avenue, the dog we called for that day. I've bought him.' The duck thought he had the distemper, and just threw him away. Nothing wrong with him but a little catarrh. Ain't he a bird? Say, ain't he a bird? Look at his flag. It's perfect. And see how he carries his tail on a line with his back. See how stiff and white his whiskers are. Oh, by damn, you can't fool me on a dog. That dog's a winner. At the cliff house, the two sat down to their beer in a quiet corner of the billiard room. There were but two players— Somewhere in another part of the building, a mammoth music box was jangling out a quick step. From outside came the long, rhythmical rush of the surf, 
and the sonorous barking of the seals upon the seal rocks. The four dogs curled themselves down upon the sanded floor. "'Here's how,' said Marcus, half-emptying his glass. "'Ah!' he added, with a long breath. "'That's good. It is, for a fact.' For the last hour of their walk, Marcus had done nearly all the talking, McTeague merely answering him by uncertain movements of the head. For that matter, the dentist had been silent and preoccupied throughout the whole afternoon. At length, Marcus noticed it. As he set down his glass with a bang, he suddenly exclaimed, "'What's the matter with you these days, Mac? You got a bean about something, hey? Spit it out.' "'No, no,' replied McTeague, looking about on the floor, rolling his eyes. "'Nothing, no, no.' "'Ah, rats,' returned the other. McTeague kept silence. The two billiard players departed. The huge music box struck into a fresh tune. "'Huh!' exclaimed Marcus, with a short laugh. "'Guess you're in love.' McTeague gasped and shuffled his enormous feet under the table. "'Well, something's biting you, anyhow,' pursued Marcus. "'Maybe I can help you. We're pals, you know. Better tell me what's up. Guess we can straighten it out.' Ah, go on, spit it out. The situation was abominable. McTeague could not rise to it. Marcus was his best friend, his only friend. They were pals, and McTeague was very fond of him. Yet they were both in love, presumably, with the same girl. And now Marcus would try and force the secret out of him, would rush blindly at the rock upon which the two must split, stirred by the very best of motives, wishing only to be of service. Besides this, there was nobody to whom McTeague would have better preferred to tell his troubles than to Marcus, and yet about this trouble, the greatest trouble of his life, he must keep silent, must refrain from speaking of it to Marcus above everybody. McTeague began dimly to feel that life was too much for him. How had it all come about? A month ago he was perfectly content. He was calm and peaceful, taking his little pleasures as he found them. His life had shaped itself was, no doubt, to continue always along these same lines. A woman had entered his small world, and instantly there was discord. The disturbing element had appeared. Wherever the woman had put her foot, a score of distressing complications had sprung up, like the sudden growth of strange and puzzling flowers. "'Say, Mac, go on. Let's have it straight,' urged Marcus, leaning toward him. "'Has any duck been doing you dirt?' he cried, his face crimson on the instant. "'No,' said McTeague, helplessly. "'Come along, old man,' persisted Marcus. "'Let's have it. What is the row? I'll do all I can to help you.' It was more than McTeague could bear. The situation had got beyond him. Stupidly he spoke, his hands deep in his pockets, his head rolled forward. "'It's—it's it's Miss Sipa,' he said. "'Trina, my cousin? How do you mean?' inquired Marcus, sharply. "'I—I—I I don't know.' stammered McTeague, hopelessly confounded. "'You mean,' cried Marcus, suddenly enlightened, "'that you are—that you, too—' McTeague stirred in his chair, looking at the walls of the room, avoiding the other's glance. He nodded his head, then suddenly broke out, "'I can't help it. It ain't my fault, is it?' Marcus was struck dumb. He dropped back in his chair, breathless. Suddenly McTeague found his tongue. I tell you, Mark, I can't help it. I don't know how it happened. It came on so slow that I was, that, that, that it was done before I knew it, before I could help myself. I know we're pals, us two, and I knew how, how you and Miss Sipa were. I know now, I knew then, but that wouldn't have made any difference. Before I knew it, it, 
It, there I was. I can't help it. I wouldn't a had it happen for anything, if I could a stopped it. But I don't know. It's something that's just stronger than you are, that's all. She came there. Miss Sipa came to the parlors there three or four times a week, and she was the first girl I had ever known. And you don't know. Why, I was so close to her I touched her face every minute, and her mouth, and smelt her hair and her breath. Oh, you don't know anything about it. I can't give you any idea. I don't know exactly myself. I only know how I'm fixed. I, I... It's been done. It's too late. There's no going back. Why, I can't think of anything else night and day. It's everything. It's... It's... Oh, it's everything. I... I... Why, Mark, it's everything. I can't explain. He made a helpless movement with both hands. Never had McTeague been so excited. Never had he made so long a speech. His arms moved in fierce, uncertain gestures. His face flushed. His enormous jaws shut together with a sharp click at every pause. It was like some colossal brute trapped in a delicate, invisible mesh, raging, exasperated, powerless to extricate himself. Marcus Scholler said nothing. There was a long silence. Marcus got up and walked to the window and stood looking out, but seeing nothing. Well, who would have thought of this, he muttered under his breath. Here was a fix. Marcus cared for Trina. There was no doubt in his mind about that. He looked forward eagerly to the Sunday afternoon excursions. He liked to be with Trina. He, too, felt the charm of the little girl, the charm of the small, pale forehead, the little chin thrust out as if in confidence and innocence, the heavy, odorous crown of black hair. He liked her immensely. Some day he would speak. He would ask her to marry him. Marcus put off this matter of marriage to some future period. It would be some time, a year, perhaps, or two. The thing did not take definite shape in his mind. Marcus kept company with his cousin Trina, but he knew plenty of other girls. For the matter of that, he liked all girls pretty well. Just now the singleness and strength of McTeague's passion startled him. McTeague would marry Trina that very afternoon if she would have him. But would he? Marcus? No, he would not. If it came to that, no, he would not. Yet he knew he liked Trina. He could say, yes, he could say he loved her. She was his girl. The Sipas acknowledged him as Trina's young man. Marcus came back to the table and sat down sideways upon it. Well, what are we going to do about it, Mac? He said. I don't know, answered McTeague, in great distress. I don't want anything to... to come between us, Mark. Well, nothing will, you bet, vociferated the other. No, sir, you bet not, Mac. Marcus was thinking hard. He could see very clearly that McTeague loved Trina more than he did, that in some strange way this huge, brutal fellow was capable of a greater passion than himself, who was twice as clever. Suddenly Marcus jumped impetuously to a resolution. "'Well, say, Mac,' he cried, striking the table with his fist, "'go ahead. I guess you—you you want her pretty bad. I'll pull out, yes, I will. I'll give her up to you, old man.' The sense of his own magnanimity all at once overcame Marcus. He saw himself as another man, very noble, self-sacrificing. He stood apart and watched this second self with boundless admiration and with infinite pity. He was so good, so magnificent, so heroic, that he almost sobbed. Marcus made a sweeping gesture of resignation, throwing out both his arms, crying, "'Mac, I'll give her up to you. I won't stand between you.' There were actually tears in Marcus's eyes as he spoke. There was no doubt he thought himself sincere." 
At that moment, he almost believed he loved Trina conscientiously, that he was sacrificing himself for the sake of his friend. The two stood up and faced each other, gripping hands. It was a great moment. Even McTeague felt the drama of it. What a fine thing was this friendship between men. The dentist treats his friend for an ulcerated tooth and refuses payment. The friend reciprocates by giving up his girl. This was nobility. Their mutual affection and esteem suddenly increased enormously. It was Damon and Pythias. It was David and Jonathan. Nothing could ever estrange them. Now it was for life or death. I'm much obliged, murmured McTeague. He could think of nothing better to say. I'm much obliged, he repeated. Much obliged, Mark. That's all right, that's all right, returned Marcus Schuller, bravely. And it occurred to him to add, You'll be happy together. Tell her for me. Tell her, tell her. Marcus could not go on. He wrung the dentist's hand silently. It had not appeared to either of them that Trina might refuse McTeague. McTeague's spirits rose at once. In Marcus's withdrawal, he fancied he saw an end to all his difficulties. Everything would come right, after all. The strained, exalted state of Marcus's nerves ended by putting him into fine humor as well. His grief suddenly changed to an excess of gaiety. The afternoon was a success. They slapped each other on the back with great blows of the open palms, and they drank each other's health in a third round of beer. Ten minutes after his renunciation of Trina Sipa, Marcus astounded McTeague with a tremendous feat. Look a here, Mac. I know something you can't do. I'll bet you two bits I'll stump you. They each put a quarter on the table. Now watch me, cried Marcus. He caught up a billiard ball from the rack, poised it a moment in front of his face, then, with a sudden horrifying distension of his jaws, crammed it into his mouth and shut his lips over it. For an instant, McTeague was stupefied, his eyes bulging. Then an enormous laugh shook him. He roared and shouted, swaying in his chair, slapping his knee. What a josher was this Marcus. Sure, you never could tell what he would do next. Marcus slipped the ball out, wiped it on the tablecloth, and passed it to McTeague. Now let's see you do it. McTeague fell suddenly grave. The matter was serious. He parted his thick mustaches and opened his enormous jaws like an anaconda. The ball disappeared inside his mouth. Marcus applauded vociferously, shouting, Good work! McTeague reached for the money and put it in his vest pocket, nodding his head with a knowing air. Then suddenly his face grew purple. His jaws moved convulsively. He pawed at his cheeks with both hands. The billiard ball had slipped into his mouth easily enough. Now, however, he could not get it out again. It was terrible. The dentist rose to his feet, stumbling about among the dogs, his face working, his eyes starting. Try as he would, he could not stretch his jaws wide enough to slip the ball out. Marcus lost his wits, swearing at the top of his voice. McTeague sweated with terror. Inarticulate sounds came from his crammed mouth. He waved his arms wildly. All the four dogs caught the excitement and began to bark. A waiter rushed in. The two billiard players returned. A little crowd formed. There was a veritable scene. All at once the ball slipped out of McTeague's jaws as easily as it had gone in. What a relief. He dropped into a chair, wiping his forehead, gasping for breath. On the strength of the occasion, Marcus Schuller invited the entire group to drink with him. By the time the affair was over and the group dispersed, it was after five. Marcus and McTeague decided they would ride home on the cars, but they soon found this impossible. The dogs would not follow. Only Alexander, Marcus's new setter, 
kept his place at the rear of the car. The other three lost their senses immediately, running wildly about the streets with their heads in the air, or suddenly starting off at a furious gallop directly away from the car. Marcus whistled and shouted and lathered with rage in vain. The two friends were obliged to walk. When they finally reached Polk Street, Marcus shut up the three dogs in the hospital. Alexander he brought back to the flat with him. There was a minute backyard in the rear, where Marcus had made a kennel for Alexander out of an old water barrel. Before he thought of his own supper, Marcus put Alexander to bed and fed him a couple of dog biscuits. McTeague had followed him to the yard to keep him company. Alexander settled to his supper at once, chewing vigorously at the biscuit, his head on one side. "'What you going to do about this? About that? About—about about my cousin now, Mac?' inquired Marcus. McTeague shook his head helplessly. It was dark by now and cold. The little backyard was grimy and full of odors. McTeague was tired with their long walk. All his uneasiness about his affair with Trina had returned. No, surely she was not for him. Marcus or some other man would win her in the end. What could she ever see to desire in him? In him, a clumsy giant with hands like wooden mallets. She had told him once that she would not marry him. Was that not final? I don't know what to do, Mark, he said. Well, you must make up to her now, answered Marcus. Go and call on her. McTeague started. He had not thought of calling on her. The idea frightened him a little. Of course, persisted Marcus. That's the proper caper. What did you expect? Did you think he was never going to see her again? I don't know. I don't know, responded the dentist, looking stupidly at the dog. You know where they live, continued Marcus Schuller, over at B Street Station, across the bay. I'll take you over there whenever you want to go. I tell you what, we'll go over there Washington's birthday. That's this next Wednesday, sure. They'll be glad to see you. It was good of Marcus. All at once McTeague rose to an appreciation of what his friend was doing for him. He stammered. Say, Mark, you're... you're all right, anyhow. Why, pshaw, said Marcus. That's all right, old man. I'd like to see you two fixed, that's all. We'll go over Wednesday, sure. They turned back to the house. Alexander left off eating and watched them go away, first with one eye, then with the other. But he was too self-respecting to whimper. However, by the time the two friends had reached the second landing on the back stairs, a terrible commotion was under way in the little yard. They rushed to an open window at the end of the hall and looked down. A thin board fence separated the flat's backyard from that used by the branch post office. In the latter place lived a collie dog. He and Alexander had smelt each other out, blowing through the cracks of the fence at each other. Suddenly the quarrel had exploded on either side of the fence. The dogs raged at each other snarling and barking, frantic with hate. Their teeth gleamed. They tore at the fence with their front paws. They filled the whole night with their clamor. By damn, cried Marcus. They don't love each other. Just listen, wouldn't that make a fight if the two got together? Have to try it some day. End of chapter 4